Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be discussing uh, energy, which is a very broad subject, I realize. But um, there's been a recent movement in Congress to actually pass a piece of legislation that would um, do something to address climate change, even if it doesn't go as far as scientists say is needed. And that gives us a jumping off point for the broader topic of energy and how that um, intersects with labor, I guess you could say. As I said, we do have uh, some sort of good news coming from the Senate, which is very strange to say and hard to believe still. Even stranger that some of the next few words out of your mouth include the word mansion. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's... um, in the last week or so, there's been reporting that Joe Manchin has signed on along with his fellow Senate Democrats to a bill um, which has earned the acronym IRA for Inflation uh, Reduction Act. That's um, not what Joe Biden thinks it means. This bill would do a number of things, including you know funding renewable energy and X, Y, and Z things towards... Uh, that were had been covered previously by a bill called Build Back Better, which you know floundered on the shores of Joe Manchin and his resistance to the idea. Um, before I run out of um, steam, to pardon the kinetic pun, energy, or, you might say. Y- yes. Uh, do we have thoughts on all this? I think the funniest part is that it's the one time the Democrats have played procedural hardball. In the entirety of the Biden presidency, you know, Biden was supposed to be the president who could compromise to get things done. That didn't work. Um, So the Democrats have finally realized that as bad as it's going to be in the midterms, it's going to be so much worse if they don't do anything at all. And a few of them might want to keep their seats. So for what will likely be the last remotely free election in the United States by any measure of the imagination. So they basically tricked the Republicans into letting this bill happen. And now the Republicans are coping by saying they're going to doom a bunch of bills. Well, pardon me. Susan Collins is saying that that might doom a bunch of bills that I'm sure Republicans were going to show up in droves to vote for anyway, codifying things like, you know, same-sex marriage or whatever. So, um, Chuck, I'm, I'm your constituent. If you're listening, that was awesome. Do more of that, like 1,500 times. <laughs> That's what you should be doing. So that was that was nice, even if, you know, it it allowed Manchin to, in his words, hit a homer in the bottom of the ninth after, you know, going like 0 for 4 to continue the baseball analogy, all four of them being, you know, three pitch strikeouts. <laughs> what we're going to do in this segment a bit is talk about uh, why we can mark this as uh, a rare step forward, a step towards uh you know, greening our energy grid, 
and why past efforts at this have not gone anywhere and why past efforts have failed. Um, Famously, the Obama administration failed to pass a climate bill during the years when they had a supermajority in the Senate and all that energy uh, dissipated. Political energy was uh, used towards passing the Affordable Care Act instead. And, you know, for all the good that's done. Yeah. Ironically, a bill that has survived mostly on inertia. Mm-hmm. You're having a good time now. I'm very happy for you. There's going to be a lot of physics metaphors flying around. Every Everything I learned back in ninth grade is coming back. So anyway. one of the issues with uh, the idea of moving towards renewable energy has been opposition from certain elements of the labor movement. Uh, labor movement since 1950 or so has been a source of support for the Democratic Party. And if the labor movement is not on board with renewable energy, then the Democrats aren't going to make that movement themselves. You've, you have uh, unions like that work in the coal industry and unions that work in these extractive fields, you know, oil and fossil fuels that, you know, have been hesitant to embrace renewable energy for fear that doing so would put them out of jobs. Uh, fossil fuel work is lucrative work. Uh, people get paid large sums of money, large salaries to work in those fields, those oil fields and oil rigs. And and the fear is that if we replace all that with solar energy, those people will be out of work. West Virginia as a whole will be unemployed. And it does not help that in our current moment, the pivotal senator, the guy in the Senate holding all the power, is from West Virginia. So this has served as a an unfortunate roadblock for momentum towards building something akin to the Green New Deal, even if it wasn't always called that in the past. Um, we've, we've had previous episodes sort of discussing this dichotomy that is a false dichotomy. Let's start by that. It is absolutely nothing but horse manure that you have to make a decision between people having uh, good jobs and people having an environment where, you know, the planet isn't melting into a ball of lava uh, within the next 50, heck, 20 years. But every time there's any whisper of any kind of renewable energy, of any kind of climate change, of, of taking it remotely seriously, because we're not, that that's just a given at this point. There's always all of these articles, there's always a lot of very serious people sort of, you know, scratching their chins and saying, but what about the unions? And then more often than not, unions that have workers in the energy sector join in on that. And it's hard to blame them because they do represent workers. And a lot of those workers tend to not vote for politicians who want to pass things like a Green New Deal, which puts their leadership in the very difficult position of having to bridge that gap. But they could they could be a little bit more pained about having to bridge that gap instead of simply saying, you know, we weren't at the table. Blah, blah. Very often, once you dig down, they were invited and simply decided, you know, not to go. This isn't the case. I, I don't think this is the case with the GND, but certainly they're, they, what they basically have said, everything from the AFL-CIO, from the United Mine Workers of America, from the IBEW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, 
is that the Green New Deal includes things like saying there has to be a just transition. There have to be retraining programs. There have to be these things. But there's no mechanism for funding that. There's no mechanism for enforcing it. Um, and, you know, what is a just transition anyway? And I think it was the IBEW president uh, who said there's never been such a thing. There's never been a just transition when there's been a change in in any of these things, which to me is the kind of statement that, you know, reveals we, this is why we are where we are, because nobody ever has any vision or imagination that something could be better, but not wrong. Every time there has been this kind of sea change, we have left workers behind and not for a better environment, which at least is worth something, but we've done it for way worse things. We've done it to destroy more of the planet and to send more labor offshore so that, you know, CEOs can make more money and to uh, uh, militarize half the earth and, and drape it in, in American camo. For all of that, we're, we're perfectly willing to screw over workers and nobody says a peep. But the moment it's for the environment, then suddenly the unions are all head up about it. And they have reason to be because these are some of the few things that in large part are still being done within the United States. These are still sort of good union jobs. They have an obligation to their membership, and I don't want to diminish that. At the same time, the jobs need to go away. There has to be a change in the sector. That is not arguable. And when you see unions basically go, well, this didn't give us everything that we wanted. Nobody's, that's the definition of compromise. Nobody's getting everything they want out of this. If you, if, if the green, if the environmental movement was getting what they wanted out of this, everyone would be complaining about it. Which. Maybe they should be, but you know, at this point, the the changes that science says are necessary in order to preserve a, a habitable environment for life on Earth are going to be painful ones. They are not going to be easy, and you know, there are ways in which avoiding that pain and trying to divert that pain and trying to is an instinct that sends us further down the road to destruction. Um, Another thing that has come up in American politics is um, ethanol, uh, you know, this corn fed form of gasoline that, you know, primarily serves the interests of some farmers in Iowa. Uh, Iowa happens to be where the first primaries for both parties are. So you have this situation where these certain constituencies in the exact industries that we really don't need powerful constituencies have outsized power in American politics due to flukes of history and geography and the nature of the Senate, which we've been over before and really don't need to get into again, but it is worth noting that should go away. And all of this has led to kicking the can down the road for decades now. And here we are with a finally a bill to show for all of this, but the understanding that the bill is not delivering remotely what is necessary. And I think, you know, we like to blame certain segments of the population as far as like, you know, it's politicians and, and people who are suffering from inertia, which we'll call that the word of the episode. There's too many people who are comfortable and comfortable enough right now that they're 
unwilling or not willing enough to make changes and sacrifices in order to get the things that we need to get done. Um, but the effects of climate change are really affecting these working class people first and foremost. Um, like just last week in uh, Kentucky, they had devastating floods, floods that killed at least a dozen people, if not more. Every single week, we have some kind of climate disaster that's happening. And at some point, you know, it, it, obviously at some point we should have all woken up already and, and realized that, that we need to do something. But I personally am very tired of the argument that, well, what was I supposed to do? in this. And we get this with a lot of things, like to, to be very online for a second, just this past weekend, um, people defending working for defense contractors as, oh, well, what else am I supposed to do with my life except work for the evil empire? Like we, These are not choices that we have to make. We don't have to work for the oil industry. We don't have to work in coal mining. For, for many of us, there is something, anything that we could do instead, but there's money attached to pulling oil out of the ground. There's money attached to blowing up villages across the globe. And that is where people decide that, what am I supposed to do? I, I wanted to have a nice vacation. So before before it all blows up, before we all melt, before there's no food for anybody to eat. And that is what we've been saying for the past 50 years. And we need to stop just collectively. It's got to stop. It is worth noting in all of this, we've uh, focused a lot of attention on this show on the Democratic Party, which holds power and which has been held effectively hostage by one guy whose family personally profits from the coal industry in West Virginia. But the reason he has so much power is because there are 50 Republican senators who are all on the take from the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, the fossil fuel industry has played an immense role in fomenting opposition to anything being done about climate change, not just among uh, politicians, but among the public. You know, there's been endless, uh, effectively, propaganda from outlets like the Heritage Foundation that are funded by fossil fuel companies that to, you know, explain why doing all these things would be just in, too inconvenient for us to handle, why they would doom the economy, why actually it's not that big a deal. You know, we're going to farm on Greenland now. It's going to be cool. After decades of denying the problem exists, and then minimizing the problem, you're starting to see some acknowledgement of the problem, but a refusal just to do anything about it. Which, Which I think that reflects, well, the whole, the whole reason that this dichotomy, 72 point air quotes, exists is because that has been the approach. Because as we know, in fact, literally right before doing this, saw a clipping from 1912 or possibly 1917, but definitely in the 1910s, of a newspaper article where scientists already said, hey, the amount of coal we're putting into the atmosphere isn't great for the earth. When I was a kid, climate change 
was not an arguable topic. It became one because Exxon and all of these other companies who had known that this was happening had redesigned all of their technology to work with the inevitable effects of climate change, even as they denied it to everybody else. Uh, basically decided, you know what's even cheaper than spending money lobbying against any kind of law for this? You know what's even... It's getting people to do that work for us by basically taking advantage of that exact instinct that Lou mentioned. Oh, you know, what else am I going to do? This is the only job available. This is the only... And it's kind of hard to moralize on that because I know we all end up at some point working somewhere that we'd rather not. We all end up, may even end up working for somewhere that props up a horrible institution um, or, the, you know, it, it's, there are times when to draw a paycheck, you lock up your conscience and the degree to which you do that, you know, might differ. So it's hard to moralize on that. But at the same time, the fact is that something like the Green New Deal needs to happen. It's the bare minimum. And to stall it and to oppose it on the basis of this thing that has uh, uh, basically on, we don't know what's on the other end of this. We do know what's on the end of letting all of climate change go unchecked. And it's a fireball of a planet. It's 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 the heat wave that kills people in Europe happening every year. It's the wildfires in California a million times worse. It's food. It, it's massive starvation. It's Pinkertons running everything because they've already made it very clear that they consider themselves the anti-climate change uh, riot shock troops. I saw a guy in a Pinkerton polo the other day and was just taken aback in real life. Like he was proud or something? Like I imagine he works there and that was his work polo, but. But like, just, just, in just public, just embroider narc on right there on the New go. York City subway. Well, that explains. Why are you allowed? Why are why are Pinkertons allowed on the subway? <laughs> anyway, somebody's got to watch for fair violations. I suppose so. Yeah, the cops aren't doing it. They're all too busy chewing gum and arresting street buskers. At any rate, the point being. So the reason I bring this up is because there is an instructive contrast in that Maine did get a state level Green New Deal passed, but it did, and it did that with the backing of the Maine AFL-CIO. Um, now they did that by bringing the AFL-CIO into the negotiating process, which actually weakened some of the bill's environmental targets and protections and all of that stuff. And that's the problem. If unions are going to say, well, the problem here is that we want protection for our members, for their jobs and that kind of thing, you cannot then turn around and weaken the green bits of the bill, the goals that the bill is meant to push. So it really does seem as though the issue here is that you have a lot of people in these trades who are not progressive by any stretch of the imagination, and you have a lot of people who maybe are. You the the renewable energy trades are not very unionized, if at all. Um, I, I think the the highest is like HVAC type installers, and those are only unionized to about fourteen percent. So union density is not high in any of the better energy trades, and so the question becomes: How do you transition that? 
there are ways. The um, forgetting which union is this, I want to say it's the electrical workers has an apprenticeship program in renewable energy stuff. They've been pushing to make Green New Deal uh, bills part of that. Unions are trying to push for like direct mechanisms to fund retraining programs because in many cases, uh, working as a as a solar installer and that sort of thing, it's not unionized, so it pays less. That kind of thing. We will have a better solution than this later on, but like it's important to note that at some point you do somebody is going to have to sacrifice. And my worry is that we're going to sacrifice the long-term survivability of planet Earth because we cannot get out of our own way for understandable reasons. I'm not saying they're not. I like drawing a steady paycheck as much as the next person because I like to have food. But I am also asked to sacrifice for reasons that are far less important than the planet Earth continuing to exist on a yearly basis. And nobody is writing Vox articles about what I think about that. I think it's worth noting also that uh, the right wing has been successful in making a sort of faux class element to all this, where climate change is this boutique issue that is only cared about by wealthy Hollywood types and New York politicians while Joe working class has to concern himself with how much it costs to fill up his tank at the gas station. And in doing so, you know, a lot of people have been led to believe that, well, actually the costs of climate change are me having to pay more for gas and not me wondering if my house is in a hundred year flood zone because those hundred year floods are happening more and more often now. Moreover, to be very online again, we found out again this week about all of the celebrities who like to take 15 minute flights everywhere. So clearly like at some point people need to wake up. Like it doesn't matter how much hypocrisy we talk about and, and, and everything like this isn't, we are being lied to by people who are interested in keeping us dumb and stupid and with every facet of this, uh, it, it's becoming very, very obvious that we have to do something. Like Kim Kardashian is not going to be affected by climate change to the same degree that I am. That is false. This is a Joe Worker issue. This is not a Kim Kardashian issue. No, I, I think you're exactly right to point that uh, in... Uh, making Hollywood celebrities the face of environmentalism. There are some problems because, as we know on this show, a majority of emissions are being put out by the richest people in the world, the people taking private jet rides and the companies responsible for you know, all of the emissions. Um, and, and so it's pinned as this individual issue where we all have to make sacrifices and by you know less reliable lawnmowers or what have you when even somebody watching fox news can see that george clooney is taking a private jet and there's an understandable world in which hey that doesn't add up i'm not going to take any of this seriously i'm going to do my own thing screw this this is all fake Etc. And like I said, this has been a very successful propaganda effort. And, you know, 
they found the right people to, you know, encourage people to spite. But anyways, we, we spent this segment talking about all of the obstacles to things being done. I want to talk a bit more in segment two after this break about the sort of issues with our reliance on private utility companies and the ways in which our current energy reality outside of, you know, polluting the planet and making it inhospitable for life is just plain not good for us on a day-to-day basis. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We spent the first segment of today's show talking about the um, obstacles that have historically prevented the United States from passing anything approaching serious climate legislation. We talked about how uh, the coal industry and the ethanol industry and fossil fuel more broadly have just proven too... Uh, powerful an industry and too powerful a segment of workers to really take on, to really um, try and do anything that might jeopardize those fields. In this segment, we're going to talk a bit about the private utility companies that so many of us rely on for energy and in so many cases are causing more problems than they're worth. Uh, to give examples, uh, in California, famously PG&E, the company responsible for a lot of energy, a lot of utility, electricity stuff there, um, is having to do rolling blackouts some summers because their infrastructure just isn't equipped to deal with preventing wildfires otherwise. And Texas, we've seen twice now in recent years have their energy grid, which is uh, covered by a company called ERCOT just fall apart when needed most either due to unprecedented cold or the very precedented heat of a Texas summer. Um, Real quick about Texas energy. Uh, ERCOT is the company who actually creates the energy, but there are different companies that, that service each point. So there's a customer facing one, which I can't remember the other one. There's the one that actually services the lines. I think that one's called Centerpoint. And then there's ERCOT. And I think there's another one in there as well. So uh, in case you thought it was bad, just because ERCOT can't do enough things, you never know who's actually at fault for you not getting your power down there. Uh, so fun little aside there. I I promised that there would be more physics content. So you can't create energy. Isn't there a law about conserving it? Noah. Anyway, more importantly, ERCOT, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the Texas energy grid is also, what is it, like not connected to the rest of the countries, which is unique. Correct. Because it's Texas. Um, Why would they do anything? One exception to that is uh, El Paso, from my understanding, which is way at the western end of the state by New Mexico, and they're just on the western country's grid. So, like, when the rest of the state was dealing with outages, El Paso was fine. Yeah. There you go. And and you would think that that would make the rest of the state think, 
hmm, maybe El Paso's on to something, but no. Uh, yeah, locally, of course, um, we have rg e which also famously has... So rg e and a number of these companies, rg e is not the only one, uh, are owned by companies, by, by other companies that in some cases that aren't even American-based. rg e is owned ultimately by a company operating out of Spain. Um, and when you do that, you have no incentive to help energy problems happening in Western New York. <laughs> no. <laughs> we finally broke us. Um, but famously, RGNE, despite having multiple times asked for increased rates on customers, which it has said are motivated by the fact that it needs to be able to update the grid, to invest in better technology, to invest in, in fact, renewables for some of its energy load and all of that, despite all of that, has completely failed to do any of that. Hasn't even been able to maintain the current grid that it has that is old and busted. Can't even do that. And yet, despite that, we'll repeatedly ask to increase rates on customers. Um, and I don't know if people are familiar with this, and it definitely works differently in other states. I imagine that in Texas, you just like drop off a big bag of money with you know dollar signs on the outside at the state legislature, and that's all you have to do. You probably don't even have to do that some years, because if you've seen some of those legislators, they're, they're real freaks. They, they are willing to do that for free. Well, you only have to do it some years because they're only in session some years. Like, That's also very true. There are state legislators that legislatures that just only work even years. Ugh. Or odd years. Christ. Anyway, point being, the way that these work in, in many, many states is that the power company basically goes before a utilities commission or a service commission or a public service commission or an executive commission or whatever the heck it's called and says, Here's what I want to increase rates to. And the vast majority of the time, the state just goes, yep, you can have that. And that's it. That's the entirety of the conversation that takes place. Normally, yeah, they'll bring some papers and some stuff to kind of provide, you know, the, the, the fig leaf, right, of evidence that this is why we need to do this. But a lot of the time, it's not necessary because there's no real opposition. Um, I know that recently here, uh, rg tried to increase rates on customers in this area, and there was actually a huge push from Rochester City residents asking uh, to end things like fuel shutoffs during the winter, to uh, uh, deny the rate case, to deny the rate increase and all that. And just by actually pushing, they were able to bring the hearings from Albany, where they normally are, the state capital, to Rochester. So this is an area where, you know, people power can actually have some results, at least it can in the United States, because we'll get to that in a bit. But largely speaking, these companies hold themselves to be completely unaccountable to the public. And in some cases, like Ericot, again, they're relying on the fact that a lot of Texans are still going to vote for the same people who are giving Ericot everything it wants. Um, PG, a lot of Californian legislators, uh, legislators, pardon me, give PG&E everything it wants. 
So the question is, you know, what kind of campaigns are people going to mount? They do exist. There are some in, in several of these states, but again, that's for later. What you've said about these companies having just effectively free reign to set prices at what they want is, you know, entirely true. They have uh, a lot of power that stems from their monopoly over the utility. And uh, if there's one thing that economists like saying, it's that monopolies are bad, that when you give all this power to one company, they're going to use and abuse it. Um, And yet we rely on these monopolies for some of the most important stuff in uh, our lives, you know, like electricity. So we've set things up very poorly if you are concerned about like your energy bill. You know, ultimately, if you're a normal person, you want to know that the lights will be on when you get home and your fridge uh, won't have died uh, or, or be full of spoiled food, um, that you'll be able to have heat in the winter. And ideally, you'll be able to have cool in the summer because otherwise you are going to sweat to death with the way the earth is going. So mm-hmm. you really – but ultimately, because of the way that the world works – you have to care about the number, you know, the the amount you're paying for all of that. And we have put that out of your control about as far as it can get. Um, we've put it in the hands of, I mean, really, honestly, a class of robber barons uh, who, in many cases, never have to meet any of the people who draw power from the company. And that is, uh, again, a recipe for people getting treated worse. I mean, ERCOT is, you know, putting out these constant uh, uh, moralizing little announcements saying, you know, you need to use, be, be prepared for blackouts, but be prepared to use less heat or cold. And it's, again, you're a private enterprise. Like ultimately, if, if you weren't, um, if this wasn't a profitable way to operate, you wouldn't be involved. So what's happening here? And that sort of thing where they're telling people to use less power is sort of in line with much of the other rhetoric around climate issues. It's about, you know, individual usage, you know, turning the lights off in your bathroom when you leave the bathroom, which you should do. Absolutely. It conserves energy, but the scale of the problem is not about individual choices on that scale. It's about how we've designed our infrastructure and, the energy sources we've chosen to use to power that infrastructure. And that's a series of choices that go back decades and have largely been out of the hands of ordinary people. Texans living today didn't get a vote on whether they should have their own energy grid separate from the rest of the country and powered by fossil fuels with, you know, those decisions are made well outside of public hands. Right. And, and for, for a large part of, and for basically anything on the state level or national level, even to some degree on the city level, there is no policy or there's very few policies right now on any of those levels that actually reflect the will of the people. Uh, we have, not lived in a democracy, if you want to think of a democracy as something that um, creates or, or reflects the will of the people. We haven't lived in a democracy in a very long time. 
because at no point do are we able to get things that we want that that we can decide that we want vast majority of Americans do want something for climate change. We do want something to support and protect reproductive rights and rights for LGBTQ people and, and everything like that. But we can't get that because there's a whole bunch of people who are incentivized to just keep things the way they are or actively make them worse because of, you know, a theocratic tendency or whatever. I do kind of want to talk just really briefly about the, the, obvious hypocrisy of everything like i think that every time you look at a bad policy decision like conservatives who say that they love economics and love the free market um somehow is supporting a monopoly every t- single time or you talk about um theocratic weirdos in power honestly who who want to do this there's always going to be some level of hypocrisy and i don't think that's a useful argument to point out anymore i think like when it comes to climate change and when it comes to a lot of other policies like we have to start talking about the morals of this is this actually a right a good thing to do not oh well you're coming at this from a, a hypocritical point of view no you're they know that like that's that's goes without that so when we talk about climate change and we talk about work and we talk about how at the end of the day, this is something that's going to benefit them. Like that's kind of what we have to do and not talk about the hypocrisy. Of it. No, it's a useful point. People have been pointing out the hypocrisy of you know, Republican legislators for decades now. And uh, look it where that's going. Yeah, it doesn't do anything. It, it, like at the end of the day, you know, we have to start talking about and attacking from uh, another angle. Of course, I can't remember what that angle should be right now, because that would be useful. But Well, the, the reason that hypocrisy is not a useful angle is because this country trains you to be a hypocrite. True. Um, and it. I am promising you that I'm about to pull off a segue into the actually relevant next topic, believe it or not. But it promises you, what, what this country promises you more than anything is that it doesn't matter how marginalized or downtrodden you are. It doesn't matter what particular set of tough circumstances you suffer from. You can take advantage of whatever you want to take advantage of and say it's okay because of all of these other things, right? I don't want to get into rehashing anything online or whatever, but we've all met somebody. We've all had that thought of, you know, I want this for me. It's okay because, you know, at its most understandable, I had a bad day. I know I shouldn't, but I had a bad day. Or... I, when somebody else, you know, uh, takes a turn way too steep, it's because they're a bad driver. When I do it, it's because, oh, I didn't realize, you know, quite how the road was shaped, whatever. This country promises you the chance to do that with every decision you make in your life. And one of the ways in which it does that is because for the longest time, this country offered the rest of the world as your playground. If you were an American citizen, even if the people who lived there were also American citizens, because you see where I'm going with this is that we can see exactly how bad this gets right now in what I like to call the playbook of both major parties for all of the policies that they're going to make those of us in the Imperial Corps suffer through the island of Puerto Rico. There Pardon me, go. the archipelago of Puerto Rico. Culebra and Vieques and Mona and Desicheo, pardon me, and whatnot. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar, 
Puerto Rico had a publicly owned power company, the Autoridad de Energía Eléctrica, the AEE, the Puerto Rico Power Authority or Energy and Power Authority. It's typically called in English. PREPA is very often the English acronym used for it. And recently, and, and PREPA had a unionized workforce. And in fact, the president of that unionized workforce was very often one of the spokespeople who had to discuss what was going on with uh, things like, you know, if there were blackouts after hurricanes and things like that. Now, mind you, I will say this. I have lived through several hurricanes in Puerto Rico. There are times when it has been immensely frustrating to not get news. I remember when I was a kid, there was one particular hurricane whose name I can't remember right now, where they literally took the grid down ahead of time so that they could essentially safeguard it from the worst impact of the storm. And then it took, according to uh, these workers, it took less time to get it back up and running afterwards because they had been able to kind of, I don't know, store components away or whatever. I was very young at the time. Don't remember a lot of this discussion. But the fiscal oversight board that currently runs Puerto Rico, which is a bunch of unelected, appointed bureaucrats, uh, including guys who think that, by, sorry, that nations should run their economies like the Bible, which is a thing. Um, and uh, weirdos who spend all of their time getting into fights with Puerto Rican activists on Twitter and uh, celebrating the arrival of white supremacists to the island and that sort of thing. That's the kind of people who currently run Puerto Rico. The governor is there for show. And to throw out the first pitch at Roberto Clemente Day. That's it. And they mandated, they pressured the legislature into handing a contract to this company, Luma. I don't remember where it's from. It's a Canadian-American thing. So that's cool. So if you're north of the border and you think you're better than us <laughs> and their chief executive, Justice Dodger Wayne Stensby, who managed to get held in contempt for not handing over papers to a Puerto Rican court. And the only person I've ever heard of who was after being held in contempt, not put in jail and allowed to do the thing that got him put in contempt for not doing. And these people have raised rates repeatedly with zero accountability, um, have done so for the first few months. They had nobody who could speak Spanish. I don't know if you're familiar with Puerto Rico, but it is still the main language. Have basically left live wires in people's houses sitting in water, just standing water outside of people's houses. Have failed to update the grid despite asking for these repeated rate increases. The most recent of one was in July. By the way, in most other places, companies are only allowed to ask for rate increases, something like on the order of once every year or once every two or three years, depending on the contract that they have. Luma has been allowed to ask every few months. Puerto Ricans cannot know ahead of time what their electricity rate is going to be for the next month because Luma's contract allows them to do that. And in the meantime, the unionized workers still have to actually do a bunch of the maintenance work on the power plants and everything. And they're not seeing any of this. All that money is going to Wayne Stensby and his weirdo cowboy hat collection. And none of it is actually getting reinvested into any of the updating the grid. That wasn't happening already because all the money was going to maintaining it. But Lubin promised it could turn it into a modern grid. And it has done approximately 0% of that. That is what's coming down the pike if things don't change. 
if we continue to have this duel every single time between you can either have the, the Green New Deal or you can have union jobs. You can either keep the working class happy or you can keep environmentalists happy. If we keep having this dichotomy, that is what's going to happen. Everyone is going to be screwed. Everyone is going to be paying through the nose while a bunch of Canadian and American petro barons get rich. Oh, and yeah, and I'm sorry. If they were Russian, we call them oligarchs. But, you know, that's not allowed over here. That's that's a, that, that, that's an ethnic term now, apparently. that The kind of people that we've spent the past few months saying Vladimir Putin hangs out with, those are the people who will benefit if things don't change. Bringing things back locally, some of them might be Spanish as well. But uh, you give us this article on Luma um, from the San Juan Daily Star where they're seeking a 17% rate hike. And one of their proposed ways of dealing with this rate hike is by suggesting that the government offer subsidies to residents who, you know, just simply can't afford it, which strikes me as almost refreshingly naked in how everything operates, where the private company is asking for a favor for from the government so that people can afford their product so that they can continue uh, being the one selling the product. It's, boy, that feels like a bad way for things to work. I, I saw this, you know, probably a year ago or something like that, because Luma's been in charge for, I think, just over a year at this point. Uh, I think one of the things I heard was that the rate hikes that they keep asking for is because uh, people keep suffering blackouts. And so Luma isn't getting as much money off of the grid as they thought they would so that they need to increase the rates so that they can get the money and get the profit that they were expecting. So their failed product, they're justifying increasing the price of their failed product because it keeps failing, which is bananas crazy. Like that's crazy, but they the government keeps sorry. The junta keeps saying that they can do that because that's not a government. That's a well, actually, that's the thing. The board basically just takes a hands off approach and the useless empty suit that Puerto Ricans have for a governor because Americans have only ever given that island a choice between buffoon one and buffoon two. The result has been that they get to continue doing this, and the thing is. I want to make it clear. It's not like Puerto Ricans are taking this lying down. There are protests every damn month. There are marches. There are rallies. There's everything. But the Puerto Rican legislature, large part, doesn't have to listen to any of that because they have like six or seven, well, sorry, six gringos and one Puerto Rican, I think it is at last count. They have to keep happy. And the Puerto Rican barely counts. Let's be clear about this. So you have a bunch of unelected people who have zero accountability and zero need to keep anybody happy but themselves and their overlords and uh, the American federal government determining energy policy for upwards, uh, possibly still upwards of 3 million people, maybe a little bit less than that now. Um, and uh, no, no amount of public pressure is going to change that because of the way that the relationship with Luma is set up. In the United States, those relationships are exploitable. There are still ways to bring human power to bear. Um, and I'm hoping that eventually, you know, Luma, again, has only been in charge for a year. The The hope is that maybe, you know, something can change there. I don't know how realistic that hope is. Um, in terms of privatization, Puerto Rico really did go down that road before a lot of other places did. 
I remember a lot of public assets being sold off to private companies when, when I was a kid and it's only gotten faster since. And, uh, maybe, maybe this is a bridge too far. Here's hoping that something so vital as electricity, uh, can, can, uh, in, in an Island that, you know, gets, can easily get up to a hundred plus during the summer of extremely muggy human heat that a bunch of people I know here would not survive and will admit that they would not survive. Well, maybe that'll change things would be nice. To sum up a lot of what you're saying is it's bad when people who aren't accountable to anyone have so much power over a vital resource. When we come back from this break, we're going to talk about ways that maybe we could solve that possibly possibly we'll be back you're listening to punching out on waylp rochester if you'd like to continue slacking off you can find all of our past episodes on itunes and soundcloud remember your boss isn't listening but we are Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Lights? And Lou. That was bad. <laughs> uh, in the first uh, couple segments of today's show, we discussed uh, various issues with uh, how we produce and receive electricity in this country. And here in our third segment, in the positive segment, you know, we're going to try and resolve the problem. We're going to try and fix it all. But um, I left off the last segment with the question of, well, if the problem is that the people in charge of things, charge, are, you know, not accountable to the public, you know, what can we possibly do about that? And, well, one answer is to make them accountable to the public. A lot of potential energy building up behind that. Yes. You know, this is not a outlandish idea the idea that if the public relies on it the public should have some say in how it actually happens and how it gets to them and how it's produced and yet we've continued to allow all these private hands to oversee the process by which we all rely and uh most notably in puerto rico we see how all of that uh is a problem yeah. And, um, you know, it, we live in a country where people only seem to remember that, like, the public sphere exists when it's time to go yell at school board members over uh, your kid's beautiful smile being denied by a mask, which causes him 56 different ailments, including Morgellons. We forget that for everything else. But energy democracy is going to be important from two from from a justice perspective period right that that is that falls off the tree that has to happen because otherwise the only people not not that energy is something anybody should be making money off of but especially not a bunch of unaccountable people who have nothing to do with any of the people who actually need the electricity the other thing is that from a climate perspective without energy democracy we are all going to be at the mercy of people like Wayne Stensby of people like I don't even know the names of the people in charge of of RG&E ultimately. The head of Ericod whose name I can't remember right now but I seem to remember sounded like a Bond villain. We're not going to be able to get any those are the people who are going to be determining who gets to live, 
who gets to not freeze and or melt to death, who gets to not die in wildfires, who gets to have water. So that kind of thing is a necessity. I will say that in places like Puerto Rico, there have been pushes for this. Even before Luma, uh, there was an issue in the South where uh, AES, this uh, company, was dumping coal ash on the municipality of Penuelas, uh, which is has had that kind of that, that power plant there forever. And there were massive popular protests there. And really, I wish I could remember what came of it. I also know that in New York, there has been uh, pressure to pass the Public Renewables Act, which would make New York State, a, the, the New York Power Authority, which currently provides power to schools and public buildings, it would turn it into a player in the energy market by allowing it to provide power to homes and other more, you know, expansive offerings. And I apologize for my dog who would like to contribute to the discussion by squeaking his dog toy. I thought that was a baby crying at first. <laughs> well, a lot of babies are going to be crying after. if we don't get energy democracy in this country. <laughs> very what good. What do you take it? Noah is right. Uh, a lot of babies will be very sad uh, if we don't get this done. So for the sake of punching out and really for the sake of the babies, uh, we should, you know, try and build a future in which, you know, the energy that we need to uh, survive is not being uh, unaccountably controlled by, you know, guys in suits, but rather being decided upon by you know, the people who are going to face the impacts from it. And those impacts are not just energy prices and not just how much you pay for electricity, but, you know, the impacts of everything that climate change will cause, you know, the flooding, the fires, the droughts, the heat waves, that all of those costs are hard to price out in financial terms, but they are real costs. And, they have to be taken into consideration in a way that they aren't now because the costs aren't going to be borne by the people responsible for causing them. <clears throat> and so as long as those externalities are, you know, outside of the financial equation, they they'll be ignored until, you know, someone prevents them from ignoring it anymore. And ideally that someone is the public and not just some other guy in a suit. I mean, every time we, we end a show, we're always talking about how things can be better. And they obviously can. And, and I think despite all our doom and gloom, like we wouldn't be talking about it if there weren't something that we knew that could happen. And in the case of energy, like this is kind of a, a no brainer to a certain point. Like we've known for decades that fossil fuels are are have an expiration limit. Like there's one, they're killing us Two, There's only so much of it that we can actually have. And, you know, renewables are, are just such an obvious uh, solution that, that is honestly pretty easy. Okay. Look, I don't want a future where we can't play baseball in the summer because it's 120 degrees everywhere all the time. Yeah, no, it, it that's exactly correct. I mean, they're, the thing that makes this such an annoying topic to talk about is that for, again, most of my childhood, this was not arguable. The future the Earth had, if we continued to expel carbon into the air and other gases into the air 
at the rate that we have done so was commonly acknowledged to cause exactly what is happening. And like with everything else, whatever issue you want, whether it's police brutality, whether it's educational or income inequality, whatever, it's only become more obvious. And yet people are just stuffing their fingers farther and farther into their ears until they're bleeding all over them and refusing to listen. And and this is, I think, the hard part to admit, right? We're not used to having to make a sacrifice that we didn't plan for. We're not used to making a trade-off that we just have to make, don't have a choice. That's exactly how we got here with the pandemic. That's exactly why we have two new pandemics coming, because apparently there's now polio in the wastewater in New York State. We know we are not used to accepting a little pain in exchange for a lot of other things getting better. There are things that will happen that are not good if you enjoy what most Western people consider, what actually most American people, because in a lot of Europe, they've had to deal with things like blackouts and reducing power usage and that sort of thing. But most Americans have no experience of dealing with any kind uh, of imposed restrictions on material goods and that sort of thing. There is going to have to be some pain. That is actually true. There's just no getting around that. But the idea is, can we make it as little as possible so that we can all survive and have a planet that doesn't die on us within living memory? I mean, there are, you know, like there are kids now. There are those babies we talked about earlier. And they deserve the chance to not grow up in a planet that is might as well be an asteroid. They deserve a chance to not have to build Jeff Bezos' ships so they can get off the Earth and, and go somewhere else to start the process all over again. They, they deserve a chance to be here, to make their lives here, to grow old here and to die here. and. We have a choice of, and and we only really have one choice for how we get there. And it involves, you know, taking some serious climate action way beyond anything this country seems prepared to do. And luckily, though, it does seem like at least in a few places, people are waking up and saying that the current status, the status quo, cannot continue. Because if it does, again... We all get to be at the mercy of an over-tanned cowboy hat who uh, can't find, you know, the, the, the paperwork a judge asks him to. That's a future worth avoiding. Um, for this week, I'm punching out. I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.